Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Andrew Hunter at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he is the director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group. And before that, he was a senior executive in the Department of Defense and former staffer in the House Armed Services Committee. Andrew, thanks for coming on Acquisition Talk. Glad to be with you. Great. So I wanted to start with acquisition reform. What's your view on the resurgence of reform that's kind of emphasizing speed over cost control? Do you think it's another swing in the reform pendulum, or do you think this one's shifting for good? Well, uh, I like the pendulum analogy, although I've come up with a slightly more complicated, uh, I guess, version of the pendulum analogy uh, in where I've thought of it almost like a rotary engine, uh, you know, with a triangular-shaped rotor, if you will where there's the three basic priorities in the acquisition process, which would be cost, schedule, and performance, sort of struggle or in constant tension with one another as for being the top priority in the acquisition system. And acquisition reform tends to sort of bounce around the rotor head. In other words, uh, weight uh, one of the three priorities more heavily at any given point in time. So at a period where you know we perceive that we're behind a competitor, whether it was the old Soviet Union or you know China and Russia today, you tend to see issues like speed and performance take on a much stronger priority, a much stronger emphasis at periods where you're dealing with Budget Control Act and or there doesn't seem to be as much outside pressure on the system to gin up an emphasis on performance, then cost becomes the overriding issue and everyone is aghast at cost overruns and that becomes the focus. And I would say cost tends to be the heaviest part of the rotor head. Over time, I think we go through more periods where cost control is the top priority rather than the other parts of the system. But the other parts of the system definitely rise in their urgency from time to time. You know, there are those Sputnik moments that spur the system on. And now is one of those times, right? In sort of an ironic way, and to some extent in my mind, because with the Budget Control Act 2011, we dramatically cut funding to the acquisition system, Uh, We hugely scaled back funding for research and development and also stopped buying gear at anything like the same rates that we've been buying them in recent years. And then started to say, you know, oddly enough, we find that our Nicole advantage is eroding. This is shocking. You know, what's wrong in the acquisition system that has caused us to lose ground at the same time that we cut, you know, tens of billions of dollars out of the acquisition system? And the answer that was decided upon is it couldn't be the fault of the people providing the money and the leadership in the Congress, so it must be the fault of the acquisition system uh, being too slow and bureaucratic. Well, the acquisition system is slow and bureaucratic. It's a true statement. But to me, there's some irony in the fact that they're sort of shocking, you know, shocked that... Uh, like the old classic line from Casablanca, you know, shocked to find gambling in this establishment. I'm shocked to find that after we cut funding to the acquisition system that we see that our technological advantage is, is eroding. Having said that, I actually am very much a believer that it's appropriate that we have a bigger emphasis on speed in the current environment. Not so much because I think the system was crippled with bureaucracy, although I think it was bureaucratic and it's hard to find anyone who doesn't like the idea of streamlining it to some extent, but more so because I think the pace of technology is so quick today. And in particular, when you look at the increasing softwareization of and digitization of military capability, the inherent nature of that technology is that it moves fast. Okay, so 
I think the system has to be capable of moving faster in order to keep up in that environment. So I, I do think that there's been a pretty hard shift towards speed, and and it's an appropriate shift in many ways. Now, having said that, you know you can get you can be fast, smart, or you can be fast, dumb. And one of my concerns is if our only metric of the system's performance is is it fast, you know we can very rapidly buy a lot of stuff that doesn't help, and I don't think that improves our national security. I don't think that puts us in a better place, but it does meet the criteria of being faster in the acquisition system. So I do think we have to keep in mind that even though speed has taken on a higher priority, performance and cost remain priorities as well. And you can't magically wish away the tension and the need to balance those priorities in some way. Yeah, one of the things that came up recently the past few years was the breakup of the Acquisition Technology and Logistics Office into an undersecretary for research and engineering. And they kept saying, these guys will be fast, they will be innovative. And then there was going to be the Undersecretary for Acquisition Sustainment, and they kind of put more, hey, these guys are going to be a little bit more concerned with cost control. They're going to be cost conscious. And that seemed to, in one way or another, try to balance that out. But then I think you've also brought up these points that, well, acquisition sustainment, there's a lot of innovation that needs to be going on there as well. And it's kind of weird to, to be calling out that culture as separate. Can you talk a little bit about the ATL breakup? What are your views on that? Yeah. Um, I wasn't a fan of it when it was first proposed, kind of argued against it. Uh, My theory, my reason was that I really feel like technology development needs to feed into the decisions about what to acquire and how to acquire it because different technologies lend themselves to different acquisition approaches. Uh, So I think you need to be able to tie these things together. And then ultimately, the goal is to deploy and to have capability in the sustainment phase being used by operators. And so breaking out the sustainment piece, which, you know, if I could back up for a second, the original Senate proposal that morphed into what we have today was actually to separate out the sustainment function from R&D and procurement and have sustainment be the entity that was split apart. What happened, what came out of the conference ultimately was the sustainment and acquisition were kept together and it was the research and engineering piece that was broken out as, as separate And based upon this idea that these are separate cultures and that if you want a culture of innovation, you need people who are empowered to be flexible, be adaptive, make decisions rapidly, and that culture doesn't lend itself to a box checking or compliance type mindset. But you still need compliance, so we're going to have a separate group of people who have that compliance culture and are going to continue to do that. And as you say, the problem is, from my perspective, maybe let's say 70% of technology insertion is actually happening in that acquisition and sustainment part of the life cycle of the system. Yes, early stage technology development does require an innovative mindset. There's a lot of innovation that happens there. Uh, But in most cases, it's how you use capabilities that actually delivers the innovation that matters in a warfight. It's new concepts of operations. It's a new way of piecing together different systems, networking together, hooking them together. It's not so much the, you know, can we change, you know, the megahertz frequency to a different frequency in order to evade, you know, enemy detection or to achieve a higher degree of precision and location. You know, there's certainly a lot of innovation that happens on that technological side. But that, I would argue, in the big scheme of things, is the usually the smaller part of the innovation ecosystem. Except, of course, when you get sort of, you know, epochal change in technology, you know, the development of something that truly is game changing, changes the entire system. Those moments do come, right? And so the Edison's of the world that change everything, the Jobs and the, and the Bill Gates, like, you know, there's a lot of innovation that happens 
in that space. Uh, but then you find, you know, just to draw the point out a little bit further, is right the the folks who we actually remember, the Jobs, Gates, Edison, like these are folks who actually built companies and delivered product. Right, they weren't just the lab coat guys in the early stages. So anyway, I, I wasn't initially a huge fan when the proposal came out. My read of it was that it was it was very cleverly done terms of the way the different offices were allocated in the original proposal put together by the department and that it was possible if you had a situation where the undersecretary for research and engineering the undersecretary for acquisition and sustainment uh, were committed to working hand in glove together uh, shoulder to shoulder staying linked obviously individuals are always going to have their differences but if you can envision a scenario where they worked out those differences between themselves and stayed as in some ways, a united entity within the department's bureaucracy and hierarchy, that it could work, uh, that you could have these two individuals with a different lens of focus, but they could work in concert together to be highly effective in driving innovation in both early stage technology and in implementation and sustainment. However, there is tremendous danger and tremendous risk that when you create two separate bureaucracies, that those bureaucracies will immediately focus on combating with one another and not cooperating with one another. And um, my concern is, uh, I think we may see a little more rivalry right now between the two organizations than we see focused cooperation. Yeah, that, with the, uh, the ATNL split up, it was pretty interesting because you have the acquisition sustainment side, and it seems like, well, they're still in control on that side of the entire milestone decision process, A, B, C, and that includes most of the RDT and E budget as well. So I think it was, it was interesting that you said that they were going to split it up a little bit differently and just have sustainment on one side. I heard it was like Frank Kendall that came in, the former undersecretary for ATNL, who was like, well, you need to keep development together with production and sustainment or else you're going to break that link and sustainment won't be really a concept that they're thinking about in the early stages. What do you think about the fact that, like, well, should that have been where the split was or not even have a split at all, right? Like, because it seems like right now there was the DDR&E, the Director of Defense Research and Engineering. He was in control of most of the S&T budget, the science and technology budget and, and processes. And now he's just kind of elevated to a USDR&E. So f for the most part, it seems like it was just, you know, changing some of the boxes rather than any kind of substantial change to the actual way that acquisition was done. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment because, you know, you did have, you do have the historical DDR&E position, which uh, became, in effect, the ASDR&E job uh, as part of ATNL. Uh, obviously, there's, over time, there was a bit of a evolution, I guess I would say, of the relationship between what was originally the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and the DD and Arne job. So they went through a phase where initially, you know, the DD and Arne was dominant, uh, was the only position USDA was created with Goldwater Nichols. USDA was made the primary position, but DD and Arne was still quite a powerful colleague, if you will. And then over time, you reached a point where it became very clear that the ASD Arne reported to and was subordinate to the Undersecretary for Acquisition. And, you know, one of the stated goals of the change was to reverse that and to have the RNE position be the, the senior position. Now, as you point out, the way that the uh, layout was divided, which largely followed the outlines of the ASD RNE position up through essentially the point, uh, the cycle where you're dealing, expending 6-3 funds, 
by technology funds meant that the vast majority of resources, you know, kind of in the world, in the space that had previously been ATNL, uh, was assigned to the ANS. And so you had the, by statute, by, you know, sort of order of precedence, senior position was the R&E, but the vast majority of resources and in the way the world works, one might argue, uh, power then was on the other side of the ledger with the ANS. And then you have the complicating factor that with the almost complete delegation of milestone decision authority across the system to the services, powers that had previously resided with both parts of ATNL now had really been uh, delegated to the services. And so both officials uh, lost oomph and emphasis in some way. So, you know, it becomes a rather complicated, you know, trigonomic equation to try and solve to figure out, you know, who gained power, who lost power, and, you know, who is now the top dog. Uh, the reality, of course, is that both undersecretaries lost substantial power with the delegation of so much to the services. And, you know, I think there's been discussion recently about Milestone A maybe being something that the R&E would be the Milestone Decision Authority and would have more more say over. Uh, and they may well make that change from what I understand. However, Milestone A is kind of an optional leg in the acquisition process. It's, there's there's no, nothing that says that services and program managers have to have a Milestone A. And so my guess is for the services, faced with the choice between you can have a Milestone A, which will be run by the USD R&E, or you can skip that and simply wait till Milestone B, and then you can do it yourself. It's going to be a pretty attractive choice to a lot of services and a lot of program managers to say, maybe we'll just skip the Milestone A process, uh, because why would we do that to ourselves? You know, one of the interesting things about major defense acquisition programs and all of this oversight structure is tied to major defense acquisition programs is they're actually not formally designated normally until Milestone B. So in theory, right, very little of the statutory provisions really apply to programs, even programs that will be MDAPs when they get to Milestone B at Milestone A because they're not formally MDAPs yet. And so in the old system, in many cases, the services wanted to think through some of the questions that Milestone A is designed to answer. And so they would do it because, you know, they wanted to invigorate the system or impulse the system to help them answer those questions. And not doing it or delaying and waiting till Milestone B didn't fundamentally change the equation because they still had to go to OSD, to ATNL uh, for the Milestone B process. Uh, but now they have a choice. Now there is an actual difference uh, from a institutional incentive structure perspective and, and how they go about it. So uh, ultimately, I think the only conclusion I've come to is that the center has in fact been disempowered and a lot more of the decision making effectively has been delegated out to the services. Now that was very much by design. You know, the, the requirement direct, uh, the delegation to the services was very much the intention. I mean, this was not one where there was confusion. It was pretty much both the House and Senate felt that was the right thing to do. And so, you know, that shift is very much one that was intended. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction that you brought up there because, you know, we have the split between R&E and ANS and then the delegation down to the services and then even further. So for like ACAT 2s and 3 programs, the smaller programs, it seems to be completely delegated now to the program executive office level and even in some cases to the program manager level. But then there's that also that other point where, we think of the technology labs as the ones that are kind of doing the prototyping, 
and that's usually supposed to occur after milestone A, and certainly the technology labs do do prototyping, but it seems like the authority, the formal authority to initiate that is actually on the other side of the house with the program executive offices underneath the service acquisition executives rather than in the technology labs. But then we don't really hear too much about milestone A. Usually it's milestone B. That's when a real you know program gets its acquisition baseline. That's when Congress and the selected acquisition reports are really going to start measuring performance. And then that's when we're going to really know about what cost growth looks like and what and what everything else looks like. So um, that's a good point. I, I wanted to move on here to a good paper that you and some of your colleagues have been doing. Actually, a couple papers that have come out, and it's on adaptable systems. Can you define adaptable systems? And how is it different than you know the 60-year effort that we've had to kind of field these large, expensive platforms, kind of like the DDG-51, the F-35, and like that? Yeah, and the idea of an adaptable system is a system that is going through regular updates over time. And so I, I will tell you, when I first started personally thinking about this, the idea I had in my mind was the Predator system. The Predator system, of course, now the Reaper is the, the you know, sort of newer generation, but I still think of it as Predator. It has a new designator, and it's uh, a different name, but, you know, core, similar core technologies through this. Uh, and, and that's part of the point, right, why I think of that system, because it has changed substantially over time from the system that was originally developed as an ACTD within ATNL to the Reaper system that is out operating uh, with U.S. government users, Air Force, SOCOM, and other government agencies in the field today. You know, the, the fundamentally the core technology is the same, and it's roughly you know the similar system, but it has evolved tremendously over time. The airframe has changed, the engine has changed, the sensors have changed. Almost everything, if you take out any individual piece of the system, it is different today than it was in the late 1990s when uh, the Predator system first uh, debuted as an ACTD. But there has been continuity over time and continuous operation over time. We didn't wait across that entire span to deliver you know, a system that has the capability of today's Predator slash Reaper system. We were operating it the entire time, and it evolved, if you will, over that time. And that was kind of, I guess, the vision that I had of of an adaptable system. And the, and the question I had in my mind was, you know, this was something that happened outside really the regular uh, acquisition process. Predator was not really a program of record until actually relatively recently. It started as an ACTD and it stayed outside kind of the regular acquisition system for most of its life cycle and was driven by congressional interest, uh, senior leader interest in the Department of Defense. Some There was some resistance initially to unmanned systems and the services, especially the Air Force. And then, you know, over time became embraced, but it but really evolved almost entirely outside the regular system. And so as a result, it, it was able to do this, you know, evolution in a way that would have potentially been very challenging to do in the core acquisition system. And the question I asked myself is, is there is there a way that we could actually do this on purpose rather than by, you know, by accident, you know, on the sidelines, on the margins where nobody was watching? Could you actually do something like the, a, a system like the Predator that is continuously evolving over time on purpose with the core idea being that there's there are key areas where that kind of evolution is exactly what you need, particularly in a world where so much military capability is now digitized. It's it's in ones and zeros. It's in software rather than being 
you know, hardwired in the way that classically even a lot of defense electronics were hardwired. Now, the vast majority of the capability is written in software, and software can be updated and needs to be updated, by and large, on a continuous basis. And so that's where this idea of adaptable systems, is, as I perceive it, and it's a term that I hope will become more and more popular over time, that's where the concept really came from. And the impulse for why that was of interest was because I think, again, the regular acquisition system does particularly poorly at doing continuous updates to systems. Now, we've always had this idea of spiral development, mm-hmm. um, block upgrades. You know, that's been around for decades. Both, you know, important and useful concepts. We've had different blocks of, like, the Aegis Combat System and uh, DDG-51 destroyers, different flights of those. We've had different blocks. You know, I always think of the C-130, right? We get to the, you know, C-130J now, or you look at, uh, like, the Black Hawk helicopter. I think we have a V model, so that's a lot of blocks. Uh, A lot of upgrades over time to a system where, you know, the fundamental system is still very reminiscent of what it was, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But there's been a tremendous amount of technology added and evolved over time. And, and those are, I think, highly relevant examples. What I would kind of distinguish an adaptable system, as I think of it from kind of those block upgrade approaches, is block upgrades are usually like a four to five year process. And to me, an adaptable system is something where the upgrade cycle is in months, measured in months, not years. Let me know if this kind of gets back to the same idea. It's not that the next unit that you produce is going to be of the next block necessarily, but you're also talking about potentially the existing ones. You could you can push out new capabilities to the existing production units that have already been fielded, maybe either through a retrofit or through just a software push, right? Exactly, right? Because when it comes to deploying technology in operations, it's the existing fleet that is 90% of what you're going to use. Uh, you're only ever, when you're acquiring new gear, you're only ever affecting you know, a tiny percentage of the fleet. If you can backfit something to the existing fleet, you know, you have multiplied by an order of magnitude your impact on what's deployed to the warfighter. So we were talking about this a little bit earlier, the milestone process, but that also kind of starts with the requirements process. And, you know, these are two of the big areas in in the big A acquisition process. So Whenever we think of the requirements of milestone processes, they're very linear, right? And they go from, you know, we're going to think about what the user needs are, what are the requirements to go get there, and then we're going to go through prototyping, full-scale development, production, and then usually the way we think about it for those block upgrades is like, okay, we're just going to start that kind of process over again. Does that really fit into the adaptable systems framework? How could they be changed, potentially, to get closer to what you're talking about? Yeah, and... That's a great question. A, a lot of why I started focusing on adaptable systems was an idea of, I guess, using Occam's razor, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, you, we started talking about sort of the theory of acquisition reform. And to my mind, you know, Occam's razor says essentially the simplest explanation is usually the, the best or most accurate explanation. Another way of thinking of it, perhaps, is to say, don't fix what isn't broken. So many people think that the entire acquisition system is broken. I don't feel that way. I feel like it works uh, in in certain areas relatively well. In other areas, it works poorly. One area, in my view, where it works very poorly is for systems that have to experience a lot of change over time. Uh, and in particular, I think the system basically starts to break when you want to get to upgrade cycles of two years or less. So what I mentioned earlier, right, months, not years, 
if I have five years to do a block upgrade, I'm probably okay under the classic acquisition system approach. It's going to be challenging, not necessarily easy, but it's definitely doable. And we have examples of where it's been done, Blackhawk and C-130s as we discussed. Where you can't really find examples is of a system where the upgrade cycle, truly new capability, shows up in less than a year's time frame. Why is that? Well, it's probably, in many ways, it's because our budget process says that if you want to start a new program, you know, you have to program funds to do that. How does one program funds for a new program? Well, you go into the budget process and you say, need money for a new program. Well, okay, the budget for FY19 is already approved. So FY20 is over over in the hill. So, oh, well, if I want to do something today, I'm looking at looking at the FY21 budget. So it's 2019. I'm looking at the FY21 budget, and that is the earliest, right? That's like the system screaming. In all likelihood, when I go into the 21 process, they're going to say, I'm, I'm glad you showed up today to talk to me about your interest in my 2021 budget. But the likelihood is if, if you're going to get anything, let's think 2023. <laughs> you know, That's realistically when you might hope to get into the palm. Yeah. But let's just say I'm incredibly lucky. And my my idea is such genius that it's embraced immediately by all the powers that be in the Pentagon. They're going to put it in the 2020 budget. It's going to go over to Congress. Congress maybe is going to appropriate it. Maybe they won't. If I'm lucky and they do, I get money in the 2021 budget. And somewhere about three quarters of the way through 2021, my money will be apportioned from OMB. Uh, it will show up at a service. Comptroller will sign off. And they'll say, here's your money. Go set up a program office to do what you wanted to do. And then maybe in three years' time, you'll actually have it. So that's five years, right? What the process I just described to you is five years. A lot of that time frame just spent in getting an allocation of resources to do what you want to do. It's a lot of the reason why block upgrade cycles tend to take five to 10 years to accomplish. So, you know, there's just aspects of the system that are not compatible with doing this much more rapid approach to adaptable systems. So in the, in the report that you referenced that we did, the budget process isn't the only thing that tends to slow things down. You know, contracting is not always light speed. Uh, and other things, uh, the requirements process is a huge issue as well. So what we do in that report is we kind of identify a lot of the barriers to doing an adaptable system approach. And then we look at enablers, things that actually uh, have been developed over time to facilitate things like modular open systems architecture, which allows you to plug and play a, a box with a new capability into an existing system relatively easily. You can retrofit it to your existing fleets. Things like agile software development that say, you know, if I can deploy the new capability just by changing the software without a hardware change, I'm ahead of the game because that's pretty, you know, that's much quicker and easier to do. You know, and a critical one being flexible funding, budget flexibility, the ability to allocate dollars in the year of execution for uh, a newly identified capability or need that you have uh, and actually carry it out. Now, you know, there's a tendency we look at our system to throw up our hands and say, man, it's really not designed to do this. And that's true. It wasn't designed to do this. But you'll also find that there have been mechanisms developed that enable, you know, that allow you to overcome all of these different barriers. One of the things we try to argue in our report is what doesn't always happen is we don't always piece all those tools together. So, you know, an individual program, you know, SOCOM, for example, has maybe sort of cracked the code on flexible funding. They have the MPF 11 account. Uh, they can move money around relatively easily between priorities. And 
they are less encumbered by the budget process than other parts of DoD. Well, but they may not have MOSA figured out at SOCOM. You know, that's a, that's a separate piece. Maybe they have, by the way. I'm not sure about that. But, uh, you know, there's these different pieces of what it takes to do an adaptable systems approach are much more powerful when they're actually threaded together and used in concert in a reinforcing way. And so that's one of the major points of that report. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, you kind of jumped ahead there on me because I asked you about the requirements in the milestone process. And, of course, we have, you know, the JSIDs for requirements, you can kind of skip over that with the JUANCE, a joint urgent operational needs statement. Um, the milestone acquisition process, we have the Section 804 middle tier acquisition. You can streamline some of that process as well. And even for contracting, right, we have other transactions authorities. But you went straight to the budget process. And this is something that I kind of <laughs> have been like beating my hand down for a long time on, you know, the budget process seems to be in that greater big A acquisition process, that third area that tends not to get us much attention, even though it seems to be one of the things that we have all these systems for being pretty adaptive. There's already existing authorities to kind of get through a lot of the other parts, but with the budget process, we seem to need to, uh, we still have a little ways to go. Um, and I think it's interesting what you said about SOCOM. You know, they got their own kind of acquisition authorities Cybercom to a lesser degree, but they also have some of their own acquisition authorities. But they tend to do smaller programs, right? Like SOCOM will usually, like for the CH-47 uh, Chinook, they'll kind of have like the Army procure, and then they'll do a special mod on top of it. They won't kind of go out and do a big ACAT-1, one of these large MDAP major defense acquisition programs themselves. So it seems that for the regular, you know, within the services, the regular course of things, I'm not really sure whether they've figured out the budget process. I wanted to quote you here, um, you and your co-authors. You guys say, budgets for acquisition programs provide prescriptive funding at levels set years in advance that may be incompatible with the rapidly evolving needs of an adaptable system. So can you just expand on that a little bit? Like, Where else do you see some opportunities for pushing in some flexibility into that budget process? Well, I think I think there's a range of opportunities. You know, there's been this proposal out there for a software appropriation that's been advocated. You know, a recommendation of the Defense Innovation Board, advocated by others uh, even prior to that. I, I like the idea. I think it makes sense because software has the feature that it is continuously in all three phases of the classic, you know, budget process. It is in development. It is in procurement, and it is in operation simultaneously all the time if you're doing software right because you you know it's constantly being upgraded so upgrades are constantly being developed they're constantly being bought and implemented and then you know the system is the whole time it has to operate and users have to be able to use it and hopefully your upgrades don't break the system so that user you know so that it goes down and so this method of tracking dollars which was based on the idea that we can clearly differentiate between something that is developmental something that is being procured and something that is finished being bought but is now in sustainment those distinctions really don't make sense uh, for software. So I like the idea of software appropriation, which gives you the flexibility to say, I'm doing all three of these activities, development, procurement, and O&M at the same time. And it's not necessary to kind of divide my money up into those three different pots. I, I really need money that can do any of them based on what my needs are. There's other things that I think could be really helpful. Uh, part of it is being very explicit as budgets are put together in what it is that budget was designed to do. 
and by explicit, I guess maybe I, that's exactly maybe the wrong word, <laughs> because I think what we tend to do in the budget process is be very specific and particular because the budget process wants to make the strongest possible case for why dollars are needed. Mm -hmm. So you want to really say, you know, this is we're going to do this particular thing and it's going to have this particular impact and that's why we need the money. And that's very understandable. But it does create this dynamic that then when you come back in, you know, three years later when that money you originally programmed and budgeted four years ago shows up, you say, huh, turns out what I need to do is a little different than what I wrote in that budget justification document. And then someone will come along and say, huh, well, that's a new start now. You know, what you're saying you want to do with this money is different from what was approved. And so it's a new start and we're going to have to reprogram or we're going to have to get approval from within the Pentagon or from the Hill or both, all of the above. And that's a lengthy process. So there is, I think, a challenge or a struggle on incentives that in order to get money in the budget, there's an incentive to be as detailed as possible to build the strongest possible case. But then when it comes to actual budget execution, you've often tied your hands in a really unhelpful way. And it's too you know rigid. And as you uh, kind of read from that uh, prescriptive, as you read from that quote. And so there's needs to be, I think, a happy medium. We have to be able to describe what the funding, what the requirement is for funding in a way that truly justifies it, truly shows what the need is and what the general intent is, but without being so specific into the programmatic aspects of what's being done that every, you know, adjustment to reality becomes a new start in some way. Yeah. And what you're talking about there, right, is the the color of money is what we kind of call it. You know, yeah. RDT and E is a different color of money than procurement. And then even within RDT and E, we have uh, those budget activities, 6.1 through 6.7, that kind of linearly take you from from the early stage science and technology all the way through test and evaluation as though you could foresee years in advance exactly how this technology will be advancing along. Um, I think it's interesting what you said about adding some flexibility. If you put a requirement in there and then by the time you get the funds and you're ready to kind of expend them, put them under contract, things might have changed and that might cause some consternation you have to go back and re-justify what do you think about the idea of kind of like mission funding such that you know you just kind of give a general statement and you're, you say something like well you know the the, the funding is going to go not to this specific project that's going to have these specific outcomes and look like this kind of specification in terms of technical attributes but potentially you know we're going to be ai and ml and it might be going towards you know VR, AR, augmented reality, you know, kind of give a general idea of the types of things and the types of ends, um, the mission that you'll be kind of focusing on, not necessarily the specific, you know, I can picture in my mind exactly what that system will look like, but a little bit more general such that once the funds come a couple of years later, right, after they get appropriated, now I can say, oh, well, look, I didn't know that this company would have this type of technology, but that's exactly what I was looking for. And now I can push it there instead of saying, oh, well, I hope you'll still be around in a couple of years, small startup, um, so I can get you your money, right? But yeah. <laughs> what do you think about the, the idea of mission funding as opposed to kind of like this very specific programmatic type of funding where you define the requirements pretty specifically for Congress. Yeah, and I think you've put your finger on exactly what the struggle is in terms of defining what do we need to know to make good decisions on how to allocate resources and what do we need the flexibility to do when executing the budget 
there probably is always going to be a certain degree of tension there. You know, true confession time. Uh, I was a Hill staffer for a number of years, and so as a Hill staffer, it was always frustrating to deal with budget accounts where there was a, a lot of lack of specificity. I have strong memories uh, to give an example of funding for Afghan security forces, where you know, pretty substantial amount of funding, billions of dollars, and you had some kind of notional idea. Well, you know, some of this is for salaries, and some of this is for helicopters, and some of this is for you know vehicles and some of it's for mortars, but the exact, you know, how many systems and what kind of systems, none of that was being specified in the legislation, probably to the good, right? Probably for the right reasons. And so it was provided to the department with very little specificity about what's going to be used for, other than generally, you know, build effective Afghan security forces. That's, yeah. what, that's what the overall mission is. And then as you go through and you say, how was the money used? How was it expended? How much of it's been expended? Oftentimes, you'd get big lags in how long it took for funds to be expended. And in some cases, it was hard to go back and trace how was the funding really used? How was the FY15 funding really used? What did it really go for? And so as a Hill staffer, you know, I experienced that frustration and I knew how hard it was giving large pots of money to foreign security forces, never terribly popular in Capitol Hill. Members of Congress come back and say, where is this money really going? And you have to say, well, you know, I can tell you generally, but not really with much specificity how it's being used. That's a very unsatisfying answer. So there is definitely tension there. And, and I understand that desire among programmers and among Hill staff to say, no, we really want to know what this money's for before we're going to give you more. And I And I will say, there's probably a rule of reason that says maybe it's not responsible to say if you give us funds, you know, we might use it for software, we might use it for hardware, we might use it for us to acquire a service contract to do it, or we might, you know, do something entirely different. I mean, I think it is helpful to have some delineation of uh, of what you're trying to do. So I think mission funding might be a level of abstraction a little too high, uh, at least as I would interpret that term, where I would think of a mission as saying, you know, my mission is um, ISR in support of a brigade, for example, mm -hmm. you know, that might be a, just a level of abstraction, maybe a little too high. But then if I could break that down and say, again, the ISR is the key piece. And so it's less important to me which camera I'm buying or what, pla you know, maybe even what platform the camera is being deployed on. As long as I know that this is a reasonable amount of resources to support an ISR capability that will involve cameras on aircraft of some kind. You know, that might be enough specificity to say, yeah, okay, that amount of dollars for that purpose, that that's reasonable. That's something we can agree makes sense to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I always kind of have this idea in my mind that with the budget process, you know, and you can tell me whether this is correct or not since with your experience, but it seems that a lot of the focus is on what will you be doing years in advance from now? You know, I want to know exactly what your plans are going to be because I assume that you can have this perfect foresight for one reason or another, and then you can work your way back to a specified plan. And then it seems that for the most part, we don't really look back and say, where did those funds get expended? Did it get through test and evaluation? Was there a good test and evaluation? Was it an effective system? Maybe for some of the very biggest systems. I mean, we, we're starting to see a little bit of that with especially the uh, CBN-78, the Ford class carrier, and the F-35. But it seems like for the most part, most of it in the budget process is all about before the fact control rather than checking up after the fact control. Did you actually spend the money in a way 
that you know was was effective um or not and then we'll hold you accountable after the fact rather than before the fact what do you think about kind of shifting that focus a little bit from the before the fact to the after the fact control such that there's still insight we we can still see where the money was spent and then hold people accountable but it's just that you're not tying their hands um ex ante and then that has kind of knock-on effects on what you can do in technology development, which is a very uncertain process. Yeah, I, it does seem to me like there is kind of a happy medium. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is often noted is we we have very high expectations for clarity on how money is going to be used in the RDT and in the procurement accounts. But then if you look at the O&M accounts, uh, you see these massive funding categories that um, – you know, yes, there's breakdowns into sub-activity groups, but uh, you know, which the, the Hill staff will go through. But by and large, you know, as a control mechanism, there is almost no specification on how these funds are going to be used. And in fact, come back later and say, you know, for the three billion dollars that was allocated within O&M Army for a specific sub-activity group, how was that funding used? Well, you know, the list, the laundry list of how it was used. You know, you couldn't fit inside a room if you tried to print it out on a sheet of paper. You know, it's like, okay, well, of the hundred and, you know, a hundred and thirty CONUS, you know, operating locations, um, bases, you know, that funding, you know, paid for, you know, the electricity for this building over there, and it paid for, you know, I mean, it, you know, you you simply you couldn't even itemize how all that money's used. And so, in the O and M world, we really have very little idea how the money's expended. Uh, my eyes were opened a little bit on how challenging this is when I was asked uh, during my time in the Department of Defense to try and come up with an analysis of the Army's uh, spending for uh, for contracts in uh, overseas because the Army believed very strongly that they were going to run out of funds before the end of the fiscal year and would have to suspend certain contracts supporting the war fight in Afghanistan at the time, which was the hot one. Uh, and that they would simply run short of funds. Uh, and then there were other services who found that not credible. They thought the Army's analysis was off. And they said, you know, if you take money away from us to fund the Army, the Army's not going to use that money well. And we're not persuaded that they really need it. And then OSD being stuck in the middle saying, do we listen to the Army? Do we listen to the other services? Do we take money away uh, in order to, uh, to provide this money to the Army? And so it was a small team established to say, let's go listen to the Army's case about why they have this understanding that they think they're going to run short of funds. Really, really complicated, right? Because essentially what they have is forecasting tools on burn rates of money. And, you know, nowhere does they say, you know, here's the list of 100 contracts we have to fund. And you can see by math that it doesn't add up, right? Instead, it's analysis of burn rates. And you can't really you know, finger what the individual deliverables are that the funding is going to. Uh, you have to kind of tell yourself a story about, do I agree that I can slow my burn rate? Or do I think that the burn rate is what the burn rate is? And, you know, the Army's right. And, you know, at this date and this time in this year, the burn rate means that the funding's, funds will be exhausted and they will be done. And if then, if you do feel like, okay, I, what I want to do is reduce the burn rate, what are your actual tools for impacting that process? Who do you tell stop spending money or if you feel like you can't tell anyone to stop because hey we've got a war going on here how do you explain to them in a rational way to slow their spending in a way that still allows you know the war to go on but 
uh, means that you're not going to run out of funds. And, you know, believe me, that was a mind-boggling task. Um, and ultimately, in that instance, I think we concluded that we thought the Army probably did have the ability to alter the burn rate and not run out of funds. Uh, I don't recall, honestly, whether ultimately the boss decided to go with that recommendation or to allocate more funds to the Army. But uh, anyway, I developed a real appreciation that uh, this is a lot harder than it seems. You know, when you're dealing with the volumes of money that we're talking about, the complexity, the different locations around the world, and the many different tasks uh, being undertaken, you know, it's it's not really, you know, something that the human mind really struggles to kind of grasp and get your hands on. Yeah, it's a former cost analyst in the Pentagon. I can definitely <laughs> feel your pain. There. Yeah. I think it's really hard until like you like I mean this this topic might be kind of putting some people to sleep, but it's like until you actually get into it and you're like trying to figure out where the dollars are going and what those burn rates are, it you don't realize like how many systems there are and how much is actually based on estimates, right? Yeah. As opposed to like rules of thumb. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, so I wanted to kind of go back again to something you said earlier about the budget process that's like well once you kind of decide on this program requirement or not um then you kind of okay here's a new thing you got to go set up a program office to go get it and it seems kind of awkward to me to think that for every kind of new system or anything new that you're doing you got to go set up a new program office you know you, you have these requirements or whatever they are and then they just get handed off to some guy. He just gets brought in. He's, and he didn't really have potentially too much say in exactly how that got done. But then his career and his organizational standing and the standing of his um, subordinates is kind of tied to that funding, right? And so now, um, instead of having some kind of organization that's pre-existing, right, it's ex ante to the program that got decided in the budget, now you have this guy that, he he feels like his career and his organization is tied to that program. What and then he has to kind of justify, hey, you know, he's going to protect it, right? Like if something goes wrong, um, it's his career that's kind of at risk, right? And so I, I kind of see a little awkwardness with the program office structure, and especially when we think of these adaptable systems that might be changing. You know, it's not necessarily. You know, in Silicon Valley, we always hear it's not a bad thing if something fails, right? Like you want to, you want it to fail, you want it to fail early, and you might want to be able to pivot, do something new, just scrap it and start over again. It's not like that's a signal of poor uh, management by the individual in charge. So, in your report on adaptable systems, you also kind of outline that adaptable systems might challenge the uh, the program office structure, which tends in my mind, to be this kind of hierarchical, you know, zero duplication or overlap of responsibilities. Here is a complete system. You're not relying on someone else in, in the department really kind of deliver different pieces of that to you. It's all kind of like under your authority. What do you think about uh, the program office structure and, and how it relates to that adaptable systems idea? Well, thank you, by the way, for taking us down this road, because one of the aspects of adaptable systems that I really didn't talk about but that is critical to the idea is this issue of multifunctionality. Mm -hmm. So it's not just change over time in the in what the system can do or how it does it. It's also multifunctionality. It's that's the ability to do tasks that used to be done separately from a single core system that in many cases largely through software 
can do things with one thing that used to be done by a lot of different devices. And the good classic commercial example is the iPhone. You know, I used to have a calculator, I used to have an address book, I used to have a phone, and now I've got all of them in one device, and it's a software that allows it to do the same things. And, you know, I could probably list off a hundred other things. My iPhone could do these days be a flashlight uh, camera that, you know, used to be separate things. And that's true in defense systems too, you know. So look at a Navy ship, you know, advanced Navy ship, a destroyer, you know, it has a big radar system. It has probably 50 different antennas across the ship doing different things, uh, doing communications, doing sensing and warning, doing electronic warfare, doing automated tasks, uh, you know, radios. And by the way, different people with different MOSs running that equipment who see themselves as having separate jobs as a radio man and an electronic warfare specialist, folks in all these different professions using separate pieces of equipment to do separate things, except the nature of technology is such now that my radar can be my radio. My radar can be my electronic warfare system. My electronic warfare system can be my radio. And these things are no longer really distinct from each other in the way that they once were. And so what does that do then to the program office uh, that's buying the radar? And, you know, industry comes and say, we can give you the capability using, you know, we've got this, these transmit hundreds, thousands of transmit receive modules that are all being powered. And they can, not only can they do your radar function for you, but they can simultaneously transmit data over the horizon or to a satellite or, you know, a line of sight. Uh, and, you know, so your bandwidth is now a thousand times what your communication system can do. And the radar program manager says, that's not my job. You know, I'm not the comms guy. I got nothing in my job jar that says my budget is designed to pay for, you know, a thousand times increase in bandwidth for communications. Like, that's not what my money's for. It's not what my mission is. That's not my job description. So it's, it's really fascinating industry that you can do that for me. But don't look at me like that's not my, you know? and then meanwhile your your comms pm is over there saying i've got totally you know my maxed out my bandwidth and i can't possibly you know get any more out of my current system so i'm going to go you know create an acquisition program uh to deliver the 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 additional transmit receive capability on my comm system that's gonna you know drive you know what the what the commander of the ship needs to have in his comms capability but i've already got it on the ship it's right there mm -hmm. a little software tweak and so this is i'm not saying that's a necessarily a, a real like everyday example of real life but i think if you think it through you can see that it's entirely possible that that could happen and that institutionally the way we set up our program offices the way we have our even our you know personnel mos's uh, lead to a situation where you know you could have completely suboptimized outcomes and adaptable systems struggle with that because what may make or break the development of an adaptable system is its ability through this multifunctionality to do 10 different things with one system in any in single one of those 10 different things your adaptable system may look like it's too expensive as a solution but when you look at the space of all 10 of them you realize that it's dramatically cheaper than going off and building 10 separate things and just the way we organize, you know, makes it incredibly challenging to do that analysis. There's this one last piece of this kind of like linear stovepipe-ness that, that we seem to have in the Department of Defense that you brought up that I would like to discuss here. And that's earned value management system. And, and that's something that's not necessarily within the government, but they use the information for it. It's actually, they put it on contract, and then they have the contractors actually run these systems for their development programs, usually on cost-plus contracts that are greater than $20 million or so. 
Um, but that uses this kind of like static baseline, right? Everything you're supposed to, whatever the contract is, it might be a five-year contract for development and you're supposed to have this static baseline. It's all um, articulated up front. You have defined activities that are all costed that are put into a time schedule. And then you have this baseline from which you can kind of measure progress, burn rates, whether you're over cost, under cost or over schedule. Um, But then it's kind of like this big rigid system, it seems like, where you're really not allowed to be doing this adaptive systems because it's like, well, all the adaptation is supposed to be planned up front in that baseline or else how do you measure to that plan, right? So can you just talk a a little bit about like earned value management and how can we bring in like shorter iterative cycles into that as opposed to kind of having this one waterfall is what we usually tend to see it as a waterfall approach. Well, that's a great question. And, you know, obviously I think uh, what I observe happening is uh, in many cases, people dealing with the challenge of EVMS by not doing EVMS. (laughs) So, you know, uh, Congress has passed statute and said EVMS shall not be applied to middle tier of acquisition programs. EVMS should not be applied to major software program development programs. And that, that the, you know, the, the theory of the case there being that the whole, as you say, the whole logic of how EVMS is designed to work effectively makes it impossible to do some of the iterative, agile type approaches to development uh, that you see in the commercial space. And, you know, what EVMS does is it takes as a given that you've got a good plan, you know, that the baseline is the correct answer to the problem, whatever the problem is. And then, by the way, is is an unchanging correct answer to the problem right and then uh, you know what you are measuring is compliance or uh, success in executing the plan and that then becomes your metric of success of the program Uh, but in the real world where uh, the plan wasn't perfect to begin with and changing reality over time means that it grows increasingly less uh, of a accurate measure of success over time your metric is not telling you truly what the right outcome is so your question then is okay how do you actually can you modify evms or adjust it one way that i have thought about it and i don't claim to be expert enough on this topic to know how realistically implementable this is but i think of it in terms of traceability so uh you know i i don't have any issue with the idea that you need to be able to define what you're trying to accomplish, right? I don't think agile means there are no requirements and there are no plans. We just go and do, you know, I think planning still makes sense. Like a roadmap, they usually call it, I think. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, there's famous Eisenhower quote about, you know, the plan is irrelevant, but it's incredibly necessary, but planning is incredibly necessary. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I've butchered the quote, but, but I think, you know, uh, roughly speaking what I'm talking about. So I still think that's I think still think you need to plan. I still think to have ideas of what you're trying to accomplish and in the general time frame and budget at which you're going to accomplish them. But you need to be able to change it without that being a sign of failure. Uh, but I also think you want traceability. So you want to be able to say, here's the thing I decided not to do. And I thought that was going to have, you know, this element of cost and time associated with it. And I've decided not to do it. So we're going to traceably remove that if you will from the plan or from the equation and so i'm not it's not counted against me it's not failure that i didn't earn that value in the system uh for that component because i've made a judicious 
choice not to do it, but I can trace that that was then removed. So then I don't say to myself, well, even though I spent, you know, on the other parts of the program and the plan that I still am doing, that I still want to do, and I spent twice as much <laughs> as I said it was going to take me to do uh, when I started, um, you know, just because I pulled something out and decided not to do it, I don't say to myself, hey, I'm all green, you know, because I'm, I haven't spent more than I said I was going to spend overall, and I'm, you know, still on on roughly the schedule that I said, you know, you'd be able to trace the fact that, well, I, I took out a big component here. So of the things I said I was going to do that I'm still doing, I'm ahead or I'm behind or wherever I am. That's how I think about it is I think you can still have, and again, I, I my instinct is our tendency is to define work packages with such a high degree of specificity that it ultimately may make any kind of evolving system unworkable. But if you can define work packages at a level um, you know, again, with enough detail to have substance, but without so much detail as to get down to, you know, how many screws did I turn in, uh, you know, to the sheet metal today, uh, some kind of happy medium. Uh, and then you can, then it's worth potentially practical to have this kind of traceability. What I set out to do, what I actually did, um, it's not failure that I didn't do everything I said I was going to do, but I can trace and say, how am I doing on the things that I actually decided to do. Yeah, there's definitely still, or there's always been a what they call a baseline change request where yeah. you can kind of do that, but potentially maybe it's just, you know, a cultural thing of in order to get that contract and at the integrated baseline review, they just, you know, the government wants to see like this absurd level of detail. And so the contractor's incentivized to go do it. And then when they need to change something, it becomes a big process and then it looks like a failure. So, you know, it, they don't necessarily want to go through that and it becomes a little bit more rigid. Um, so potentially maybe it's like, like what we think of in the acquisition reform side. It's like, well, all the authorities seem to be there, right? Yeah. Maybe it's just like the section 804 was really just something that, you know, was a signal from Congress to say, hey, you guys, we're allowing you to go do this. There's a cultural change. We're, we're letting you be more flexible as opposed to like, we're really just actually giving you stuff that you didn't have before and it's making your life a lot easier. Yeah. Let me circle back a little bit because you pointed out that I kind of skipped over requirements. I think one of the characteristics of 804 as an example is it didn't actually create a lot of new authority. You know, it said... Mm -hmm. There is an authority to do middle tier, to do something small, rapid, different. You have authority to do it. Okay, well, you know, I may have authority to go out and spend, you know, a million dollars, but I don't actually have a million dollars. So the fact that I have authority to do it, you know, doesn't help me because, you know, there's more, there's more needed, right? Like there's more information required here. Either, a, you know, here's a bank account from which you can draw the funds, right? There's, there's another piece to the puzzle. If you read you know, for statute, you know, it's pretty spare in the actual authority that it provides. Now, one thing that happened after initial passage, I think it was actually the next year, they came back and they said, by the way, anything being carried under Section 804 is exempt from being an MDAP. Whether it actually hits the MDAP threshold or not, it's it's not an MDAP. Now, that's, you know, that's something, right? That <laughs> it still doesn't tell you, though, then, oh, well, how then do, how, how then do I execute it? You know, so your question on requirements for, for Section 804 programs, right? It says that you don't have to go through JSITs to set the requirement for an 804. It does not say what you do have to do for an 804 program. So the services are trying to figure that out as we speak. Uh, they don't have a requirements process for Section 804 type programs. So 
you know, individual programs that are that are moving out, that are moving fast, that may have RFPs already on the street. They did something. They did what they did. Um, was it well done? Hard to say because they, you know, <laughs> there was no clear process that they were operating under to make those decisions, uh, unless they happened to leverage, you know, the already existing processes that were there that that were already in use. Mm-hmm. Absent 804 authority. So, you know, you brought up rapid acquisition and yuans as like an alternative path. Well, it is and it isn't because the reality is for the yuans process, we actually did go to the joint staff and uh, the joint staff, at least in its documentation during the time that I was in the department, considered that to be part of JSITS. It was the the fast lane in JSITS. That was dramatically accelerated process. It took weeks. Uh, it was a more limited set of people engaged in the process. When I was head of the joint rapid acquisition cell, I would sit in on the validation, Juan's validation meetings as a SME, not a participant in the decision making, but but there for information and discussion if necessary. And it worked quite well, to be honest. Uh, we were able to get decisions on what we needed to do pretty quickly. They would very diligently determine if what was being asked for truly required some new material solution or whether there was another way to get it done within the existing set of systems that the services had and maintained. And where there was a need for that material solution, they'd validate. We would then facilitate taking that to uh, a program office uh, who would execute and get the job done. And then sometimes, not infrequently, in fact, in rapid acquisition, you'd come back and you'd say, so what we got back and what we tested actually doesn't quite you know, fill the need that was identified. Maybe the need that was identified, I'm thinking of some specific examples, I can't go into too much detail, but you know, a lot of what we were doing there obviously was counter ID type equipment. So there's a need to do some kind of a ability to uh, clear an area of potential IEDs. And the existing system can clear up to a certain range, we need more, need more range, need to go deeper into the ground, need to go farther out uh, from the point uh, which the system is being operated. You know, that gets validated. You go back to the acquisition community, the program office, they go out, they they try to find solutions. They come back and they say, you know, we can give you 80% of what the Yuan said the warfighter needed. And then we were also able to, within this expedited JSIDS process, figure out, was that worth it? Did we need to field that? Would the warfighter take it? Uh, and I would tell you, in my experience, like 99% of the time, the warfighter would be like, you can give me 80% of what I say they need it. I will take it. Send it. You know, get it here as fast as you can. Uh, by and large, the answer was almost always, if you can give me 80% of what I need, I want it. You know, bring it on. And so we would revalidate or validate the new, you know, modified requirement and off we'd go. Acquire the system, get it into the logistics system, get it deployed, uh, supported, and in operation. So... Even JSIDS, which I think has a pretty shaky reputation at times uh, in, in the acquisition community, in the rapid acquisition world, it actually worked fairly well as I saw it in operation. And it was able to be flexible and relatively quick when it was put in a context where that was what was necessary and with the institutional support uh, to do that. And that didn't happen overnight, right? The, the initial stages of the war, we weren't able to do those kinds of things. But by 2012, 2013, we really had this problem largely licked. We're going to have to go through that with 804. We're going to have to figure out how do you set up a requirements process for 804 type programs that gives you the responsiveness that you need in the requirement system and that doesn't get you involved in the aspects of JSIDs that were designed to be avoided when the statute said 
Jesus doesn't apply to 804 programs, but that gives you what you, know, what you actually need to carry out a reasonable program where the government actually is giving industry logical requirements that make sense that drive you to a system that ultimately the warfighter is going to want us to acquire because it's going to solve their problem. When I think of the requirements process and what you were talking about, it seems like there might be a difference between kind of just like streamlining it and getting it out there quicker especially going up to a level like where you are like that's you know that's a very high level of uh, official but then when i think of like devops for example you know there's that continuous like the operator is basically you know co-located to some degree with the developer and you have this more continuous feedback and it in my mind it seems like well that person who is the operator kind of needs some authority delegated to him right he has to almost speak on behalf of the commander knowing what that commander's intent is and then being able to make decisions instead of like okay can we just fast track this thing because you can't fast track everything right there has to be some kind of prioritization especially when you go back up to a high level so what do you think about in that devops you're definitely going to have to go back up to to the hires to get some kind of like feedback approval and, and and that kind of thing but how do we think about you know delegating some of that command down to the lower level so that they can say oh yeah just go ahead you know like go for the 80 percent solution and then you know we're going to come back and, and tell the hires later on or we'll do that communication but like i know because i'm an operator that this is still what what, what we need and we don't need to double the, the cost of it or whatever it might be do something infeasible do something different um just to kind of get to that 100 percent solution yeah this is where i think we have to kind of adapt the commercial model for a defense context. And, and what do I mean by that? You know, by, by the commercial model, I mean the fail fast approach to innovation, right? Which is, you know, try a uh, hundred things. If 10 of them work out and they work out really well, and if you've got good people running it, you know, the hope is that that's what you'll experience as an output, then I'm, I'm happy. And the fact that I had 90 failures is not failure or, you know, is failure, but it's okay because the 10 successes far outweigh the 90 failures uh, and we're ahead of the game. I'm not sure that fail fast really can work in a meaningful way in the government context because I just don't believe our system can tolerate 90 failures <laughs> out of 100. We're just not wired that way. Government is not wired that way. Uh, I, I noted with interest, you know, some months ago, Mike Griffin, the uh, head of uh, research and engineering, decided to cancel the kill vehicle program, the Missile Defense Agency. Oh, right. And I, at the time, said, you know, I, I see this as a sign of him being committed to the fail fast idea that he identified a failure and he canceled the program. Didn't say, well, let's, you know, let's double down on it. Let's keep going. Let's try a different technical approach. Said, no, we're going to cancel it. We're going we're gonna to go in a different direction. I read more recently this week that Congress is now investigating why that program was terminated for convenience rather than terminated for cause. They want to identify where in the contracting process, where in the contractor's effort the failure occurred, whose fault it was, and potentially claw back some of the funding that was allocated to the program expended in order to punish the failure. Uh-oh. Now, that's not fail fast, okay? The idea of fail fast is the failures are okay, and you don't spend any time at all identifying who was at fault for the failure and then finding a way to punish them. Now, Congress may be entirely justified in what it's doing, okay? I don't mean this to necessarily critique that 
specific decision on that program. There may be malfeasance there, and they may be right on the ball and, and ferreting it out. It is not consistent with the fail-fast model. And so I'm not saying it can never work in government, but my instinct is let's think of a more a way of how do we succeed fast rather than how do we fail fast. And what do I mean by that? You know, I think you can set parameters up, as you say, for a lower level. I'm going to get finally now to your question that you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can set up parameters of success for folks at a lower operational level to say within this box, this amount of money, and this level, if you will, of, of functionality, you are empowered. You are delegated. You are authorized. Go forth and do good. Develop what you can develop. Succeed at what you, you can succeed. And if you need more, you know, you can come back to me and, you know, we can adjust these boundaries. But, you know, you have authority within these limits to go forth and add new features through Agile software development uh, and sprints. And, you know, come back to me and I'm going to monitor what you're actually doing. But... Yeah, you're empowered within this range. You know, you, with the thing, the anecdote that came to mind from my time at the Pentagon was, you know, I talked about how the Yuan's process was relatively streamlined. We were able to get decisions in a matter of weeks, right? Uh, well, you know, my boss, uh, Dr. Carter, would, you know, always say when I would, you know, brief him on a Yuan's and say, oh, it's been validated. And be like, he'd always look at me and he'd say, how many four-star generals does it take to figure out that we need to buy this widget? It's like, how many four-star generals does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> right. You know, you think about even the Yuan's process, which is streamlined, right? Okay. Four-star commander of the forces in Afghanistan would approve it. It would go to CENTCOM. Four-star commander of CENTCOM would approve it. It would go to the joint staff. The four-star uh, vice chairman of the joint chiefs would ultimately validate wow. it with recommendations from uh, four three-stars who were giving him the thumbs up, the thumbs down. Uh, and then it was validated. You know, so it's like, how many stars have we had in this process? Well, an awful lot of stars. <laughs> okay, that's the streamlined process. So, to your point, yes, delegation is absolutely key, and I think there are reasonable ways to do it. Makes me think that you know most operators will never see you know <laughs> people at that level, especially on a regular basis. Um, you know, with the continuous delivery, especially of software, it brings to mind you know the contractors that we have. And most of these guys have been legacy, right, contractors that have been in the business for many years. They're used to kind of getting paid for hardware. What do you think about the traditional contractors? Are they kind of like up to the task of doing this adaptable systems approach? Do you see them kind of shifting in that direction and, and picking it up? Or, or how do you think about um, the industrial base in, in that regard? So I am... Um... I would say on the whole, I'm fairly positive on defense industry when it comes to software. I say that advisedly, uh, and I know that the industry has in some ways a bad reputation when it comes to software. So what's the case for optimism? The case for optimism is if you look at these companies, what you find is that when you think at least of the big players, they have tens of thousands of engineers working for them. And my experience in doing site visits and going out is these engineers are pretty smart folks. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of talent in the industrial base, people with vast experience in their areas of expertise and bright new folks coming in as well. So I, we have thousands of engineers working in the defense industry, and on the whole, they're good engineers. They're bright people. I think we have structures that cause us sometimes to generate not good outputs with, with a lot of human talent in the system and a lot of expertise in the system that we often don't get the output that we're looking for. And my sense is a lot of that is about the structures and the organizations and the incentives. And let me just 
double down really on the incentive point because I think it is a key point and a huge issue for software because, you know, the, the classic approach to software has been engineers write software. Tell me how many engineers you've hired to write your software and what their salaries are and we will pay you, you know, and plus fringe, you know, we'll pay you cost plus 5%. So we treat software development like it's a commodity, like you just, you know, time and materials. And what does that mean? That means that the incentive to do really great software, you know, insanely great software to do multifunctionality, to build in features that maybe the requirement didn't call for, but are a really incredible solution, elegant solution to the problem. There is no incentive for that because there's no payback for that. You know, <laughs> however many hours I work, I get that plus 5%. Innovation doesn't enter in the incentive equation at all. Now, doing more for the government is obviously part of the equation if you're doing that kind of a contracting approach, that kind of a, a business model. But the government says, here's how much we're willing to do, and, and we will pay for no more. So we don't have a great incentive structure for software development. So how does how does the system actually, you know, kind of get around this problem? You know, it tends to get around it by pairing the software with hardware and then loading all the profit onto the hardware you know so maybe uh, they have a purpose-built computer chip that's in a system and most of what the chip does is it's processing this software that's been developed uh, the chip itself you know is not off the shelf it's not a commercial product it may not be anything particularly incredible about it so the way the system adjusts and actually makes profit in this scenario is they load the profit onto the hardware uh, and that might be, you know, if there's a system where they've delivered a purpose-built computer chip, uh, an electronic system, you know, the chip itself may not be terribly remarkable, but it's not a commercial product, but it's really the software that's driving the functionality. But the profit will be loaded up onto the chip because the chip is hardware and they can charge for the hardware in a way that they can't charge for the time of the engineers writing the software. And we're going to have to change that model. We're going to have to accept that we need an incentive for innovation and the development of software. And the cost of software is not the true cost or the price of software should not just be the cost of the engineers developing code plus a small profit. Yeah, it seems that in the in the past, you know, the president of uh, North American Aviation, L.J. Atwood, he would say something like, you know, development and winning development is the cost of getting into the production show. So you did all of your innovation. You don't really get paid. You get, you know, you took on a bunch of risk in that development contract and you might get, you know, five, 10% on that if, if you did pretty well, right? But no. then you really got your money back once you got into production. You're rolling, you know, raw materials down an assembly line with routine labor and physical capital. And it's really that high reproduction cost where it's like, I'm getting hardware out. And this is the big part of the actual expenditures in terms of dollars, where I'm now going to be able to make my profits on top of that innovation. So I only got into production because of the good innovation, but I'm really getting paid for the hardware that's coming out. And now it seems like, well, once you get into software, well, it's basically costless, right? To just put it on every device out there, you just push it on out, but it's all in the, um, the innovation that came up front in the software and the software, we need to figure out a way of paying people for the intangibles, which is really where all the value creation these days seem to be. It's on the software side and not just software. I think product design, even for hardware, in, in my mind, like we always talk about software is different than hardware. But I think of like, well, you know, getting paid for an innovative design. Like what if we get manufacturing 
with 3D manufacturing, for example, you know, the marginal cost of reproducing some hardware is also very low. You know, it's all in the product design. How do we, that might not be here today, but it might be coming in the future. And we have to think about, you know, how do you pay these people um, the margins that you're starting to see in the commercial side for the innovation, for the product design, for, you know, doing more on the business process, the supply chains, um, the employee context-specific training, getting paid for innovation rather than getting paid for hardware, essentially the reproduction of, of, of a known good. We already know how to manufacture it. We know what it is. And then you're getting paid just to kind of reproduce that rather than coming up with the ideas, coming up with new business processes for actually minimizing the cost. Yeah, and I, and I think you also are highlighting the idea that you know software and hardware aren't fully or meaningfully independent from one another either. Right. Uh, you know, there certainly are things you can do with simply with software uh, upgrades, but when you're talking truly about adding new functionality, a lot of times there is a hardware component to that. So the software is a key piece and maybe the key piece in, in a lot of ways, but you know you're not going to add a camera to a cell phone without a camera on the cell phone. Uh, you know you can you can certainly add the camera app, but with no camera, it's not going to give you a whole lot. You know there is a relationship here, and it's one reason when we talk about adaptable systems in our report, we really are talking about hardware-based software-defined systems because it's the two working in tandem that tends to give you real increases in capability. Mm-hmm. So to move on and kind of stay in the innovation space, but we've seen the rise of uh, these innovation hubs, starting with Defense Innovation Unit, but now we see all these other guys like AFWorks, Softworks, and, and a bunch of others. And um, they're really trying to lower the barrier to entry for a lot of these new firms trying to get into the defense market. Can you just uh, muse with me about what do you think about those innovation hubs? How have they been going about it? And are there any other ways that we can kind of lower barriers to entry? Yeah, barriers to entry are a huge issue and one that I think about a lot because I think it's incredibly easy for barriers of entry to increase inadvertently. Uh, you know, in, in pursuit of very worthwhile and worthy objectives, we can frequently create barriers to entry without that being our intent. And, you know, I think of the risk there in terms of, for example, asking industry for tons of cost and pricing data on their systems. You know, commercial companies don't have to give that to their customers. It can be a huge barrier to entry for them to want to work with DoD if they're being demanded to provide that. And at times, DoD needs that information. But oftentimes, I think mandates for getting cost and pricing data aren't terribly flexible. You know, they're one-size-fits-all, you know, blanket-type requirements and, and that can serve as a real barrier to entry. You know, I think it has to be noted that the research that has been done, and we've done specific research on new entrants to defense industry says that new entrants to defense industry have been declining and they've been declining for a long time. Uh, now, I guess the good news, if you want to consider it that, is that that decline has lessened and has narrowed over time. And so in recent years, we still see some decline in the number of new entrants coming into defense industry, but the decline is much less rapid than it was in the late 2000s and the early 2010s. So maybe uh, one could, if we were an optimist, conclude that all of our efforts to do more aggressive outreach to industry have had the effect of slowing down the decline uh, in, in new interest defense industry, but we aren't in a situation to pat ourselves on the back and say we are actually increasing dynamism in the defense industrial base and we're adding to our supplier base. Uh, in fact, what we see is a supplier base still shrinking even in the last three years as budgets have gone up and contract spending has gone up substantially. 
So there is a problem here. There's no doubt in my mind that there is a problem here. Some of it is not necessarily all at the fault of defense because we do see a decline in entrepreneurship, new business generation, new business formation more generally across the economy. So this is not necessarily unique to uh, DOD, but I think it does suggest that it is an important issue to focus on. And so I do think that the leadership attention that organizations like DIU and SCO and others have gotten is appropriate. And I think the need for their functionality is there. There is a question on of scale. Uh, how does an organization like DUU scale to the size of the problem? You know, DAD has uh, over 100,000 uh, independent vendors. Uh, how many of those can an office like DAU directly work with? You know, can the, can the numbers of companies it can directly interact with actually impact the scale of the problem that we have in the industrial base? I think it's not possible for DIU or any single organization to, to achieve that kind of scale. However, I see what I think of as a critical role. Um, and where I see DIU delivering a lot of value is in identifying new business models. You know, we talked about needing a new business model for software development. Identifying business models that work for new entrants, work for commercial companies that can deliver needed capabilities, but aren't going to do it with a classic, you know, FAR Part 15, you know, contract cost plus, you know, TINA compliant, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, but they will do it if they get, you know, an OTA on a commercial services opportunity model, and that'll work for them. And they can deliver capability, and they have an incentive to innovate and to provide uh, what the department needs, and they're going to make money doing it. And it's interesting work, so they're willing to do it. So, you know, DIU has pioneered ways of connecting with tech firms, with other new and innovative companies that I think the rest of the department can then say, ah, now we see how it's done. We see the structures. We see how to piece together the contract structure with the funding approach, with the company and the way that they do business and how these things fit together. And now we can do that. We can do that at Spay War. We can do that at other parts of the army, you know, and, and that's where the scale comes from, right? That's where you get to the thousands that you really need to impact, I think, is by taking these pioneered business models and applying them to other parts of the contracting enterprise. And so to me, that I don't see it by any means at all the need for an organization like DIU to kind of pioneer these things and to find the sectors of industry that are willing to work with DOD and to find the business models that work with them and then to spread that knowledge. Now, I don't know whether we're where we need to be yet in terms of spreading what DIU has been able to accomplish and what they're learning as widely as possible to the rest of the enterprise. I think there's still work to be done there. Yeah, definitely. And when I think of scaling the problem, um, it's not just like, you know, how big is DIU, which seems to have its own little budget authority, right? Which is yeah. different than what some of the big systems commands and program executive offices have. So that might be one issue there, you know, the time to get someone on contract. Not everybody can kind of do the credit card swipe and do stuff like that that we're seeing with the pitch days. Um, but you guys have also done a great um, paper on small business graduation. So it's not just how many new companies are coming in and doing business with the government, but are they being successful? Can we transition them to a mid-tier? And then even from a mid-tier to a major, you know, and that's kind of like where we get some of the churn in the industry, the new ideas, the new blood. Can you talk a little bit about small business graduation? What have you been seeing there? Yeah, and, and yeah, you're right. We did do a specific look at, when we looked at new entrants, we also looked, because a lot of new entrants are small or start small, how many of them that start small on a new entrance stay in the 
defense industry, but graduate from small to, to being not small. And the rates are very low, surprisingly low. So it suggests that for companies that actually continue to do work with DoD, there is an, a pretty strong incentive to stay small. And that if you grow to be non-small, you essentially take on disadvantages in the defense contracting system that cause you to depart. You know, either the business fails or you just stop doing defense work. Uh, or maybe you're acquired. You know, you have to be absorbed or acquired rather than grow organically to a larger size. None of those are necessarily horrible outcomes per se. You know, I, I do talk to some folks who say, specifically those who focus, for example, on SBIR, Small Business Innovative Research, who say, I don't have a problem with companies who do an SBIR project, develop intellectual property, sell the intellectual property, and start a new SBIR project, but they don't want to take the technology that they developed and carry it through into production. Uh, they're just going to sell it off because what they specialize in is doing this SBIR type research. Some folks look at that and say, I think that's fine. You know, they're probably people who are well suited to that work and they should keep doing it. And we shouldn't expect them to become, you know, Sergey Brin and, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and become, you know, the next Google. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, uh, but I, I would say systematically, when you see the paucity of small business graduation, it suggests to me that there are some perverse incentives at work and that essentially we've incentivized companies to stay small who might actually, if they could live their you know heart's deepest desire, become bigger companies. Uh, but they simply don't see a path to do that successfully in the federal government space. And by the way, this is a this uh, our analysis that we did on this topic was was federal government wide. We looked at defense and federal government, and the dynamics are roughly the same uh, in both areas. So it's not just DOD's issue. Yeah, and it seems that, you know, this issue makes defense companies or federal contracting companies not exactly the most enticing for investors to come in and support. And then you kind of have this outside money. You can kind of do some non-consensual things, bring new technology to the table and say, hey, look, look what I was able to do, you know, um, and then you might have some problems of will the government actually buy it, even if it is great? And then how would they scale that and, and get a bunch of money, you know, potentially become like a billion dollar type of firm? We don't really see too many of those. You know, what I think is interesting, and you said this earlier with like Edison, you know, it's not that like he was only on the S&T side and then he never really was able to scale his business and bring it and bring it up, right? I mean, even with Sergey Brin, which you were just talking about, right? Yes, they brought in kind of an adult in, in Eric Schmidt to kind of run the company as a CEO, but it's not like he just exited, right? And just went to another S&T thing and then, and then started a new innovation. You know, there was still some of that founder blood. Yeah. And we see this with a lot of, you know, Yahoo was another one where you bring along the entrepreneur who started it and, and that kind of keeps it dynamic. It gives it a new firm kind of mentality. So yeah, we see, we see a lot of the entrepreneurs, they kind of keep that innovation, you know, they remember what it was like to be a new firm that had to compete, that had to create new things constantly to, to stay innovative, right? And it, I, I think it's a little bit like the, the idea of development to production. Even once you transition into production, you can't just rely on that persistently and just like make your living on that. You have to innovate new products, but also you have to innovate in production. And I think the Air Force has now set up a PEO for sustainment, right? That that kind of looks for innovation on that side. So it's keeping some of that blood. Um, so I think that's that the small business graduation is, is interesting there. 
So do you have any other ideas or topics that are at the top of your mind right now in, in the defense industry? What are you thinking about? Well, because the other one that I would point to is the issue of industry consolidation. So there's been a, an uptick in consolidation on the last kind of two to three years, I would say, coming out of the downward trend uh, in sequestration of the Budget Control Act. We didn't see a lot of consolidation in that time frame, partly perhaps because of a perception of government policy not being favorable, and partly because I think there was just so much uncertainty that uh, people didn't know perhaps what kinds of combinations might be the most advantageous in, in a down market. Uh, and then secondly, because there was very little differentiation in corporate strategies, uh, you know, I guess, you know, in, in some sense, when everyone has the same strategy, you know, how do you decide, you know, what the best matches are? Because everything, I guess, is an equally good or equally bad match in some sense uh, in that scenario. Now, in the last three years, as the market has trended back up and as corporate strategies have differentiated, now companies say, ah, we see real opportunities here, synergies to combine, uh, where we have complementary strategies and we're better together. Uh, and so you've seen kind of an uptick in consolidation in industry, particularly on the services side, but also I would say in the defense electronics space. And I believe very consistent with this trend towards digitization, softwareization, where companies that used to be in different markets now fundamentally are in the same market and they may have more pressure uh, to potentially consolidate than they would have in the past. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, our analysis on c consolidation does indicate that it's been going up in several years, but um, but surprisingly, somewhat to our uh, analysis, we didn't find too many areas where the level of consolidation had kind of reached new thresholds of concern. You know, there's obviously many areas in the defense industry where there's quite a bit of consolidation that's happened already, but you know, that is the that's that's our lived history. Um, we could undo some of that, but Right now, there hasn't been any interest in the government to breaking apart uh, these kinds of consolidations. And the additional consolidations that happening hasn't tend to kind of take, you know, duopolies and compress them into monopolies in most cases. We, we stayed away from that kind of consolidation. Um, but it's something to keep an eye on. You know, this merger between Raytheon and United Technologies was a merger of two very large companies, two huge players in the space. Now, they weren't doing the same thing, you know, so they didn't dramatically reduce competition in any individual defense market. But it's about the biggest combination of two companies in the defense aerospace defense industry that I think you could contemplate that wouldn't represent a pretty significant departure from our current industry structure. And by that, I mean something like, you know, Lockheed and Northrop Grumman merging, which at one point they wanted to do and the government said no. So I think it's very much an issue to keep an eye on. It's, of course, the whole issue of consolidation and and industry has been an issue a little bit in the ongoing presidential campaign. You see some of the candidates talking about wanting to uh, maybe break apart technology companies and, and other kinds of companies and be concerned about the level of consolidation in the defense industry. So that's something that we're going to continue to keep our eye on. We did a report a few years ago that, again, as I mentioned, measured consolidation and, and found that as of now, it didn't seem to be having really pernicious effects on the defense acquisition system, but it's definitely merits some careful uh, observation. Andrew Hunter, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Thank you. Pleasure to join you. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.